podcast intent for information on educational purposes only, not for the purpose of rendering medical advice. As always, information should be pulled from multiple credible sources. Cross reference wormlet your almost accurate hypothesis. Evans can support always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any question regarding a medical condition. <gasps> this is the actual PT podcast, where actual problems meet actual evidence, producing actual results. And your hosts, Troy Lind and Taylor Flocken. Hello, actual PT Nation. It's your hostess with the mostest, Troy Lind, and no, Taylor Flocken here today. Um, why is that, you say? Probably because I didn't want him here. You know, sometimes it's better to ride solo. Sometimes you don't need the Robin in the equation. Um, really, it's just because um, this is something that I just learned today. Um, I'm off work currently with covid so I'm diving into some of my continuing ed that I've been working on, and I wanted to bring you guys the information. That being said, um, as you probably figured out from the title, this is mostly about something near and dear to, to me, which is neuroplasticity, in, in particular, of the brain. Um, if you remember, or if you listened to our chronic pain episode, you remember that we talked pretty heavily on how the brain is what... Per- is strictly what perceives pain, or what I should say is that pain is the perceived threat that the brain feels and ends up um, creating the pain you feel. Um, So that being said, um, I have some interesting articles that I brought up um, just reading now, so let's dive right in, shall we? So this article is entitled Using Visual Illusion to Reduce At-Level Neuropathic Pain in Paraplegia by Mosley, uh, G. Mosley. So basically, essentially what happens in this study is that they take five individuals, para, uh, you know, patients with paraplegia, uh, which is basically a spinal cord injury, um, and they, so they took five of them and they did a test of them where they sat them in their wheelchair in front of a screen with a board on their lap, basically not allowing them to see their legs. And in front of them was a mirror of the top half of them. And then the bottom half of them, there was a projector of somebody walking with the exact same clothing they were wearing. Okay. So picture this set up in front of them. And what they did was they essentially mimicked the movements of their legs with their arms. So they basically pumped their arms at the same speed at which the legs were moving. And to them, it looked like, so they called this virtual walking. So to them, it looked like they were walking. And, and a lot of these people have been having, so I should set this up a little more. The, the, a lot of them, all five of them, had been experiencing pain for a minimum of 11 years with this injury. Um, and they all were expect, um they all were basically, they were all taking pretty serious pain meds and they all also uh, discontinued therapy because nothing was affecting it. We basically, essentially for this patient population, we don't really have anything other than pharmaceuticals to address the pain. So that's where they were at. They had pain for a long amount of time. They couldn't get rid of it. So they just did this study for, you know, to see if there's anything we could do non-pharmaceutically. And so as they're mimicking their walking, they're giving, I think it was every minute over the course of 20 to 30 minutes of the walking, they were, they were doing, uh, they were demonstrating what their pain score was. So they were hitting a button 
basically showing what their pain was. And they did different, I think three different measurements. One was how heavy their legs felt. One was how, um, I can't remember the exact term, but basically how, oh, how foreign the legs felt to them. And the other one was pain. And so essentially what this study found was that there was a statistically significant difference. Well, one of them dropped out. I should say that he was, the pain increased too severe to continue and he dropped out for a session. But for the other four, there was a statistically significant difference in all three of the measures, which is just astronomical when you think about it, because these people were having pain for so, so, so long. And something to even be said is that it completely abolished the pain in all four for up to two out two to three hours after. And then it would gradually kind of return back. But a lot of them, two of them specifically, continued this treatment on their own because it was so beneficial to them. So what does that tell us? It tells us that as the brain, when you were injured, the brain remaps itself in the best way possible. And sometimes that causes this chronic pain that we have to live with, right? And for them, all, all, you know, a lot of this evidence that's coming out in the last 10, 15 years, like we talked about before, it's relatively new, but a lot of this evidence is showing that the brain is what causes pain. So if we address intervent, if we use interventions that address the brain, a lot of times we can calm the brain down very rapidly, quickly, um, which is just fascinating to me. Another example of this, so that was a virtual walking example. Another example comes out of a study for, they call it visual distortion of a limb. So in this one, what happened is they took uh, patients that have chronic regional pain syndrome. Um, we kind of talked about that before. That's that central sensitization that occurs, um, basically causing you to have um, pain to any a form of touch, basically, or any form of of stimulus causes pain to that limb. And so these people specifically, it was the hand. Okay. So essentially what they did was um, pronation and supination of the hand. So they just looked at the hand and they just turned their hand palm up and then palm down and then palm up and palm down slowly over the course of um, several minutes, I believe it was. And they just every, I think it was over the course of 20 minutes also, or 10 minutes, and every minute they rated their pain. And so, you know, normally if you see the study, there's a curve that goes up and back down with the movements every single time as they turn the hand, causes pain, causes pain, causes pain, okay? And so what they found was when they gave these people binoculars and there was a magnification of the hand, so the hand looked larger than it actually was, all right, that pain um, directly mirrored the increase in size. So basically as they had an increase in magnification of the hand or the, the perceived size of the hand, pain also increased with it. Likewise, when they flip inverted that, so when they minimized the hand, so when they made the hand look smaller than it actually is, pain actually decreased with it. So just our simple perception, our brain's perception of the limb can change how we feel and and how pain affects us. One last one that I really wanted to hit on um, that is so simple yet has such massive implications. Um, so this was a, and I say this because it was 69 patients, which is a fairly large study, um, especially for chronic pain. 
Basically, they took 69 patients that had shoulder pain, just general shoulder pain. And these diagnoses were anywhere between total shoulder, rotator cuff repair, uh, just rotator cuff injury, um, literally anything, frozen shoulder. Uh, I mean, there was, I think, eight to 10 different diagnoses that they, that these uh, individuals had. So they took 69 patients with just general shoulder pain, either surgical or non-surgical at that. And each of them demonstrated limited active range of motion. Okay, so um, all of them could not lift their hand to the ideal amount one way or another. The range of motion varied, but what they found was, so in this patient population, the average duration of pain was 28.2 months. So basically two and a half years, which is a long time. I mean, that's, a, that's definitely a checks the box for, box for chronic pain. 49.3 had shoulder surgery. So approximately half of them had had some version of shoulder surgery, half had not. And what they did with these patients was they did simple mirror therapy. So what they did is they had the patient sit down on a chair, they put a mirror between their arms, and they kind of had them lean towards the unaffected side. So they were basically looking at the mirror so looking into the mirror at their unaffected arm, and they just did flexion and extension. So they just raised their arm as high as they could and then lowered it all the way down very slowly 10 times and watched the arm in the mirror. So basically to them, what it looked like was that the right arm was moving because they're moving their left and they're looking at it in the mirror and it looks like their right arm, right? So they did this 10 times. This took an average of three minutes per person, per person. That's it. So they did it for three minutes, basically. That's all they did. And they did that. It didn't give me the exact duration of how long they did it for. Um, but I think they did it just over the course of a couple visits, one or two visits. Um, and what they ended up finding out was that there was a statistically significant difference in self-reported pain, so just asking them, 0 out of 10, how much pain are you in? Pain catastrophization scales, which, as we've talked about in previous episodes, is um, basically self-reported catastrophization, which means um, if I move my shoulder, it hurts. If I do this, it hurts. It's never going to get better. It's hurt for two and a half years. There's not much I can do. I have to live with this, you know, these kind of things. People who think pain, movement equals pain, that's kind of catastrophizing. Um, and the huge one is that the, there was a statistically significant difference in range of motion. On average, they gained 15 degrees of range of motion. And that's the only thing they did was do mirror therapy for three minutes on the unaffected arm. And there was that big of a difference. Um, if that doesn't demonstrate the change and then plasticity that's occurring in the brain, I'm not sure what does. <laughs> and there's other, you know, there's lots of example like these, but these are just the three that I pulled out that I found were, you know, uh, substantial and had good evidence behind them. Um, and it just goes to show as we, you know, I'm basically just reiterating what we talked about in the chronic pain, but the brain is what runs the show. You know, the brain, if there is no brain, there is no pain. And if you want to truly, if you're experiencing chronic pain or someone you know is experiencing chronic pain, please, 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 with therapy, with behavioral cognitive therapy, whatever it is, you know, address the pain, have intervention or address the brain, have interventions that address the brain directly. 
Um, and that's how you're going to get the most bang for your, uh, bang for your buck, especially for chronic pain patients. Um, that being said, you can look for pain clinics and overall just general pain specialists. Uh, there's certifications out there, like I said, therapy, uh, what is the specialization? Therapeutic pain specialist is, um, like what I'm going to have in a couple months. So that's what you can look for. Um, always stay classy. And yes, I know no terrible intro, no terrible exit. It's what you get when there's one of us. Sorry. 